Things Internet. I'm John Bailey. On this week's episode of Popcorn Junkie, we've got yet another super mega awesome movie review madness. Madness, madness, madness. Because not only do we have four new wide releases, we've also got a special one time, well, technically two time if you count this coming Wednesday event. Uh, and I've watched a bunch of stuff on streaming. So our wide releases are Shane Black's new movie, The Predator, the, uh, I believe, um, fifth in that, sixth in that series. Wait, Predator 1, 2, the, and Predators is, would have been three. So the fourth official Predator movie, sixth if you count the AVP crossovers. Uh... But yeah, that's cut. we got that up first. Then we've got Paul Feig's new movie uh, based on the novel of the same name, A Simple Favor, as well as Sony's, uh, the, the, uh, the one they swapped out with uh, Alpha for this month, the more, and I'm assuming to placate towards uh, the award season, and that is the biopic of Richie um, Wersch. Worsh Jr., Rick Worsher Jr., I believe, uh, White Boy Rick. And then we've got the second half of the uh, Louis Zamperini story, four years after the last movie, from Pure Flix Entertainment, Unbroken, Path to Redemption. And uh, we've got the 25th anniversary of Jurassic Park to celebrate. So what, let's, without further ado, let's get started. I think you know what is on the ship. The ultimate predators. Light him up! We may die. We're still here. So come and get us, mother. So, I think I'm just going to come out and say it. I don't think Shane Black works well when he's dealing with franchise properties. The last time he handled a multi-million dollar franchise property was Iron Man 3. And that, and I, I know there are people that like it, but I still consider that the worst of the MCU personally. Uh, I feel like it's it suffers the most from being... You know, from from just having a really poorly written script and the execution didn't really help out. But yeah, it ultimately um, it, it it ultimately kind of let me flat. I don't think I think more people consider Thor two to be the worst. But on a personal level, for me, I think Iron Man three is my least favorite. And I did just release um, my make a better movie for Iron Man three. If you want to hear more thoughts on that. So for him to return to a franchise work in the form of returning to the Predator series after being an onstage actor at the time for the first one, you would hope that he would have some leeway. But uh, as it turned out, uh, it's been you know, there have been um, there have been articles written about all of the um, issues going on behind the scenes for this film. Apparently there was, um, I mean, there's, there's, there's the big one. The fact that, uh, 
that Olivia Munn did come out and demand that her scene with a convicted sex, a convicted pedophile be cut because apparently the dude is good is friends with Shane Black and Shane Black, despite the fact that his friend's a pedophile, said, no, please come up, come, come join my movie. I, I know some people, I know not all, some, you know, you can't control who your friends are, but you kind of do. It, it really is. Uh, I don't know who the guy in question is. Uh, Steve Wilder. Registered sex offender. Uh, and, yeah, I, I don't know... I don't know why... Um, I don't know why he why Shane Black... Uh, okay, Shane Black worked with him on Iron, Iron Man 3. Wait, who is he in Iron Man 3? Apparently he was in Iron Man 3 in The Nice Guys. Um, annoyed Mandarin Guard. And Perry the Lawyer. So... The dude's a dude's a soap opera actor, and yet for some reason he's friends. He he became friends with Shane Black. Uh, I yeah, it's that's bizarre. Uh, that's so bizarre how he became friends with Shane Black, and he 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 was just one of his go to like extras for a while, and yeah, it's but yeah, it's he's got that. But on top of that, apparently there was um, last-minute uh, issues while filming um, because they they took extensive reshoots, and apparently it was done pretty quickly. And the entire third act was reshot after test screening. So this had a lot of studio oversight that ultimately I think led to a weaker film. Because they changed so much from whatever that initial version that Black turned in was, they decided eh, audiences are giving are 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 keen on it, so we'll just we'll, let's do extensive reshoots. And I know that's a common practice in Hollywood. I just think it's it, it's long overdue for just being dropped entirely. I feel like it's such a like I I can't imagine that being so successful that it that it's still a continued practice like i'd have to look into the idea of the test screenings turned reshoots and where that how you know the the ratio of how much it's benefited the movie in the long run financially and how much it, it just ultimately wastes time and i feel like i wonder if it's just one of those cases of studios do it out of habit because that's just how they run things that's how we do things here they don't care about why whether or not it makes sense it's more a matter of well this is how it's all this is how we do this is how it's done this is just how we do things and yeah at any rate um yeah this movie's bad i think it's the weakest of the predator movies i haven't seen two i can't speak for two if i did see two i haven't i've completely forgotten it number one is still the best i think predators is probably second best and then, yeah, this is bottom. This is bottom. This is this is the if you if you discount the AVP movies, this is the worst Predator movie. And that's not to say it. I mean, that's the, the problem here is you've got cool setup and cool ideas. You've got the idea of of uh, Predator. Uh, here, the point, the plot of this movie, for those who aren't aware, is uh, Boyd Holbrook plays an army sniper. Who um, gets who who's who's one of his hits gets interrupted by the predator's ship falling to earth, and he 
comes across some alien tech and gets roped in by a secretive government organization that's trying to keep it under wraps. And so he's trying to be pl- he's being played off as sort of, you know, he's he's going off with the other uh mentally unstable uh uh veterans so that people won't question what's been going on. Uh you know, they don't won't question the idea of aliens falling to earth. And so the and then as it turns as things go on you, you, they, there's this plot that's being unraveled between the predators there for some reason I, maybe the scene was cut but there was rumor that this, they were going to establish female predators and that never came up in the movie uh, but the idea is that the predators are looking to advance their um, their their species by hybrid by basically taking the best samples of warrior races and of and of species across the galaxies and and collecting it for their own for their own purposes. Uh however, I think where this movie falls so the what there's a great setup there there right off the bat. The execution is really where it all falls apart because Boyd Holbrook is sadly this this the current Sam uh, uh, Worthington completely spaced on his name there. That's how little he mattered. Uh, but yeah, Boyd Holbrook is becoming Sam is is being put in that same role as Sam Worthington, where he's just generic white lead actor, and he was good in Logan. He he's got nothing here. He his character is 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 bare bones template character. He really has nothing going on here that separates him from any other generic white leading actor, you know? Um and he's teamed up with uh veterans who are suffering from various issues. Uh you know uh Trevante Rhodes who's probably one of the who's one of the highlights of the movie. Uh he, he being um one he being the adult uh Chiron from Moonlight. Uh, he plays a guy who shot at his commanding officer. Uh, Keegan Michael Key is a guy who uh, lost his uh, lost his whole like t- I think tank unit or something. Uh, but he's kind of masking the trauma by being uh, an over the top Joker. Uh, he's also and then he and then there's Thomas Jane who plays. A veteran with Tourette's syndrome. And I'll get into that. Uh, suffice to say that they do not know how to, how to write for, mentally, for the mentally disabled in this movie. And the mentally, you know, people with mental disorders. Uh, and then, and then there's like, there's a, there's a, and then there's, I think, two more guys who really don't matter. Jane, Keegan-Michael Key, and Trevante Rhodes are the main, are the important ones. Um, former Marine who teams with several of the rest of the, yeah, uh, Nettles, former Black Hawk helicopter pilot who suffered traumatic brain injury from a crash. Uh, so yeah, uh, one guy is like, the Marine, the, the Marine mentioned is like Irish, I guess? He's got an, he's got an accent in some scenes, and, um, he's, his whole thing is, Sleight of hand card tricks or something? It, it's very barely brought up. Um, but yeah, uh, aside from the main four guys that help Holbrook, uh, three maybe. Hold on, Trevante Rhodes, 
Keegan-Michael Key, Thomas Strand. Aside from those three guys, the other two barely matter. They're just there. Um, the only ones aside from Trevante Rhodes who really stay... I mean, Keegan-Michael Key is just being in his jokey self. He was basically stunt cast for his role. And then Thomas Jane, he does well, but I've, I'll, once again, get into him. But aside from aside from Trevante Rhodes, the only other really highlights of this movie are Sterling K. Brown as the government agent um, in charge of the secret organization that's been tracking the Predators. And Olivia Munn does her best as a biologist, but even she gets mired down in really bad writing. Uh, the writing in this movie is honestly just bafflingly bad. It is incoherent, and I part of me wonders how much of that was just because of the reach, constant, re, you know, the, those last minute reshoots that they did, and how much they changed things. But even at the very beginning, there were some issues, so I don't know how far back it goes. Suffice to say that I can't, I, I don't know how if Shane Black's original cut would have improved things. But what we got was debt was pretty bad. Uh, the biggest issue, I think, I mean, the, the joke, the thing here is, this isn't a very serious movie. It's definitely playing up the comedic end of things. And that's fine, except the jokes aren't funny. Like, it's time to bring it up. Thomas Jane, as the, as the guy with Tourette's, is there for jokes. He's there to be, he's there to say naughty words because, you know, Tourette's. And he, he, and that's, it got, the problem is, this movie gets some of the, of the symptoms and, and, and of the, and, you know, some of the aspects of people with, uh, uh, mental disorders, uh, at, you know, from, you know, sometimes they get it right, like, Thomas Jane doesn't always say, like, um, you know, sometimes he'll. Sometimes it's not just a, um, you know, saying naughty things. It's it's him having a tick and twitches, and that's what the, that's the whole thing. Is that Tourette's is, you know, it's a, it's a it's a neuro disorder, and they're like, the thing is, Thomas Jane becomes the stereotype for people with Tourette's as the oh they oh, look at them. They're saying like they're saying nasty things. Oh, isn't that crazy? Instead of him. Gen, you know them genuinely dealing with a guy who's suffering from a degenerative disorder. Degenerative is Tourette's. I don't think Tourette's is degenerative. I think it's just a, 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 a you know just a, a, a disorder. Let me see. Tourette syndrome. I think I'm doing more work on this than the writers of this movie. Ticks are movements or sounds that occur intermittently and unpredictably out of a background of normal motor behavior. No, no, no. Ticks associated with Tourette's change in number, frequency, severity, and uh, anatomical location. Waxing and waning, the ongoing increase and decrease in severity and frequency of ticks occurs differently in each individual. Bouts, bouts of bouts, which vary for each person. Tourette's does not adversely affect intelligence or life expectancy. Okay, I, I, I wasn't sure if it was a degenerative disorder or not. No. So, so it's not. But yeah, Thomas Jane gets... Get it works for some of some of the for the scenes where they get it, and then otherwise it's completely offensive. It's like you you had it, you had it, you get what how you get how the thing works. Why did you stop? And that same thing goes for Boyd Holbrook's son, 
played by Jacob Tremblay from Room, the movie Room, not the movie The, the Room, the one with uh, Bri- uh, Brie Larson, that room. Um, he plays Boyd Holbrook's son, who has autism. And the first scene with the kid nails auti- nails autistic behavior, nail- exemplifies what autistic kids g- go through. I mean, it's a bit over the top because he, like, uh, there's a whole thing where, like, bullies knock over chess, chess boards and he puts them back perfectly. But at the same time, like, yeah, th- that kind of thing where it's like, I perfectly remember where each of the b- b- pieces go uh, on the board, on each of the boards. Yeah, that, I mean, it's a bit over the top, but it, it's not like out of the, or- not out of the question for certain um, people in this, hi, cat. It's not out of the question for certain people on the spectrum. Uh, also, um, he saw, you know, the, he's introduced, uh, there, the, those bullies pull a fire, pull the fire, fire alarm to, to, as a, as the prank, which is a really stupid prank. Like, these are some weak ass bullies. Uh, and the, and Jacob Tremblay goes into the fetal position because he can't handle the excess, the, the super loud noise. And he like he he pats his head against his hands against his head because it's like no 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 can't handle no no so his opening scene perfectly encapsulates what a lot of people on the spectrum uh, behave like it's it perfectly capture encapsulates their behavior as soon as that scene's over he's given one liners and like there's another thing with people on the spectrum they don't give direct eye contact. They're never really looking at individuals unless they, unless like I had to go through years of, of, you know, of, of what do you call it? No, not training, but like of my mom kind of letting me know, Hey, don't forget to look people in the eyes. You got to look people in the eyes. And even now, like I'll, sometimes I won't even like, if I'm like, if I'm not thinking about it, I won't look people in the eye uh, when I'm talking to them sometimes. Just, just that's how my, I naturally go. And meanwhile, this kid is looking, looking like there's a scene specifically where he's um, being held by Sterling K. Brown, looks the man dead in the eye and delivers some one-liner that Shane Black wrote for him. And it's like, oh, you're just not even trying anymore. You just gave up, didn't you? And I don't know what Shane Black's deal with kid sidekicks are. Like, he did this in Iron Man 3... In the nice guys, it worked because uh, that character was decent, was well written and well rounded, and had a great dynamic. And the actress had a great dynamic with uh, Russell Crowe and Ryan Gosling. And here, why is he, why is this kid here? I'll tell you why he's here. Because autism is magic. That's right. Not only can autistic people figure out alien technology uh, uh, while, uh, you know, faster than the United States government, but they are the next stage in human evolution. I don't care that I spoiled the movie. That's the stupidest thing I've ever seen said about autism. It's not as heinous as the assumption that vaccines cause autism. That's heinous. That is... That is... De- that is... Deadly, like you are, you are causing people to forego, um, you know, a social safety net, uh, for social, uh, you know, a societal medical safety net for your 
stupid, woobly, goobly, whatever you think is going on because you don't understand how actual science works. That's heinous. There is, a, there is however, on the opposite end of the thing, you don't want to overcorrect. You don't want to be like, like we, you could just say people with, on the spectrum are just people. They just have this thing that separates them slightly, so they're not, he- so they're not, I keep saying, thinking heteronormative, that deals with sexual uh, and gender issues. No, um, they're not psychonormative. They're not neurotypical. So they, so they aren't going to fit into the category of quote-unquote normal, but they're not, but there's nothing, act- there, there really isn't too much wrong with them depending on the severity of, you know, the condition. You don't want to overcorrect that and be like, instead of saying, yeah, people on the spectrum are just people. To be like, oh no, scientists, like Olivia Munn, without, how she said this with a straight face, I'll never know. She says to Boyd Holbrook at one point, you know, scientists believe that that autism is the next stage in human evolution. I feel like I'm going to throw up in my mouth a little bit there. Like, like seriously? She's, a, she's supposed to be a biologist. And she's like, oh yeah, totally. Autism is the next... Where is this coming from? Who, who thought this... Is this a thing? This kid... I'm doing this right now as I'm recording. I have to know, is this a thing? Human evolution... What role did autism play in human evolution? Oh no. Oh no. Oh no. Those labeled as autistic have been mislabeled for society's comfort? What the? Label us to believe we are less than uh, with ill-fitting, ugly-feeling label to blame. Please don't call us from the herd just because my child is. What the? Because the stigma surrounding the labels, that ASD is actually the next step in human evolution. Anyone within the autism spectrum are gifted, pure empaths, most certainly and probably majority gifted with other psychic or. This is from medium.com. For the medium, I, what is, what is this place? Medium, where words matter. We, okay, so let's read. Now, this is, you're, you're all witness, you're all witness to my research process as I'm doing this on mic. Uh, This is how, this is, this is how you break down, um, this is unfortunately how you have to do things. One, okay, mediums owned by a medium corporation. Platform this example of social journalism, having a hybrid collection of amateur and professional people and publications. Okay, so medium is just a host for stories from Twitter co-founder Evan Williams. And the idea is to push journalism, have journalism be um, social journalism media model consisting of hybrid professional journalism and amateur content. So, Medium, the problem isn't this, this isn't a woo site. 
who is this? Who wrote this? Certified book whore. Waya Wanano. I don't know if that's a uh, if that's an actual name or a or a um, or a, or a or like a username to as like a as like a pseudonym. Depths of my bat crap crazy, just like those who came before you had to. What is normal anyway? Is back pages shut down? If back when why are sex workers so mad about to be highly empathetic and autistic? That's claps responses. So, a Google search for autism and human evolution lists a medium article. Not a not, not not a um not a like, scientific article, not a you know peer reviewed journal article. Cause I mean there are um oh no. Oh no, Discover magazine. Oh no, we are dealing with actual scientific journals. In the play Lucy, an emotionally distant anthropologist decides that her severely autistic daughter Lucy is not sick and said says the hermit scientist he is the future. Our anthropologists suggest that hyper-sociality hyper was created a poisonous overgrowth. Thanks for the science, but... Sh- oh, okay. Okay, whew. You scared me there, Discover Magazine. You scared me there for a second. Science-based theater is potentially more profound and illuminating. Damien Atkins' Lucy doesn't get much past putting on science face. Even so, the basic idea is great. It is possible that autism could be the next... Uh, as long as there's variation, it's heritable. It leads to differential reproductive successes. That is to say, if slightly autistic geeks get more play, then, nor na- then natural selection may increase the frequency of autism in the future. That is to say, if autism is even genetic. I mean, they're, they're determining that ge- autism may be genetic. Um... But it's hard to say because uh, w- w- we don't know specifically uh, how autism, the disorder, rose in society. Uh, but yeah, as far as we know, no, 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 no scientist is actually saying that. He, like the, you know, the person who said that this is that this is the next stage in human evolution, a pseudoscientific stage play of a you know a, a, a scientific a stage play that uses science to make wild accusations and assumptions essentially science fiction and and some random person on medium.com there is no real science behind the idea that hum- that autism is the next stage of human evolution like i don't expect to be classified as homo sapiens autisticus or something you know like that's that's mind boggling that's not how you science what is this doing in this movie why why is this a thing why would you bring this and it becomes a plot point it becomes a plot point that the that the magic autistic child is the next stage in human evolution. I this mo- this movie. I'm debating putting it on my. Li- I don't know if I want to put. Uh, this is this is 
genuinely baffling to me. What the hell happened? How did we get from just alien sports hunter comes to Earth to hunt humans to autism is magic in the next stage in human evolution? Where the hell did that come from? I, I don't know. I don't know. Suffice to say that the Predator has it has some decent action moments in it, but even like the writing is genuinely some of the worst I've seen of this year, for especially from a major multi-million dollar production, like a tentpole movie. Some of the worst writing. I think I'm still going to go with Jurassic World: Fallen Kingdom as the worst from a major like franchise movie this year. But this is definitely a close second. This is just... What the hell even? So, yeah. Um, I, I Even if even as a Predator fan, I think you're better off, like, watch... I rewatched AVP. I'm going to bring it up in Patreon Corner, but I rewatched AVP. I would much rather rewatch that again. I would much rather watch a Paul W.S. Anderson movie than a Shane Black movie... When it comes to the Predators. When it comes to the Predator franchise. That's where we're at right now. This is the, this is where we're at. So. Just. You, you don't. Don't see this. Don't, don't support this crap. Wait. wait. You don't need to see this. Why would you want to? It's. God. It's, it's mind boggling. What they came up with for this movie. And it's just so off the mark. You, what, it's like they had the point and then went way off in the left field. You're missing the point entirely. Yeah, I'm done with this. I saw my mom. She told me to say hi to Stephanie. Were you aware that he took out an extra $4 million life insurance policy on Emily before she disappeared? People do terrible things for their own reasons. They thought you knew more than you were letting on. I want to know your secret. I'm going to do my best not to go on for another 30-minute rant. For these next couple. Because I don't want to keep you all here. <laughs> longer than you have to. You don't need a three hour epic. For a podcast. For a movie review podcast. Um, so next up is Paul Feig's adaptation of. I believe. what I forget her name off the top of my head. But she. Um, the book is called uh, A Simple Favor. And. It basically deals with. Um. You know, Gone Girl as a dark comedy, essentially. Because the plot is definitely very much in line with uh, with that of Gone Girl. But it has much more of a comedic twist to it. Darcy Bell wrote the book. And yeah, it's, de- it's a thriller novel with a, de- with a demented sense of humor. And I don't know if that's from the book or if that's Paul Figg's edition. But it's def- but it's it definitely sets it apart. Uh, and I gotta say, yeah, it's it, it it's um 
it's I I highly recommend it. This is the pick of the weekend, honestly. Uh, like I I don't want to give too much away. Suffice to say that it is a thriller. It is a mystery thriller that features darker elements. Like the whole thing of like what the first the the setup for the movie is Anna Kendrick hanging out with Blake Lively because their kids get along, and uh, Blake Lively is this sort of demented. Um, I, I say demented. I should probably not use a better word. Uh, she's like this. The, this she's got a really harsh sense of humor. She she swears all the time. She's she's an alcoholic. She she's not shy about sharing her woes. And uh, but at the same time, she's also pretty secretive. Like there's the bit in the trailer where Blake Lives like, "Did you take my picture? Delete that right now." So it's it, it, so. I mean, she's definitely got. Her character has 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 real issues that become become more apparent as the movie goes on. And then Anna Kendrick's just like this sweet, happy, put on you know, put on a happy face, mom, you know. And she puts on a mommy blog. And Anna Kendrick actually met and pretty much nails the whole uh, vlog uh, uh, setup. And I think that you know part of that's the writing, clearly, but like. Anna Kendrick knows how to deliver, like, hey, mom, you know, hey, mom, so today it's, it's, she knows, I mean, (laughs) she knows how to act like a, act act like a vlogger, and she nails it. Uh, This also sees the second major motion picture of one Henry Golding, the, the very handsome uh, uh, British man uh, that just that premiered in uh, that that was that uh, premiered. He premiered. I mean, he kind of did. He his first fa- his first motion picture role was Crazy Rich Asians as the love interest, and here he is sort of the Ben Affleck to Blake Lively's Rosamund Pike, uh, in a sense. And so you've got him as sort of a a a a one time best selling author who is kind of on the outs. And and a bit and his marriage is on the rocks and they and they're you know you're never quite sure where he you know his setup but Golding just delivers a phenomenal performance for for a guy who started out as a model dude is just just a phenomenal leading man he's got all all of the charisma I I want more movies where Henry Golding is the leading man just the dude oozes charisma. At the same time, this movie does have... It's not perfect. The kid actors, the kid, you know, the little kids are pretty standard kid actors. Now, like, there's a bit where the kids are supposed to get into a fight with each other. And it's so, so badly acted. The kid actors are not great. There's also these weird, like, peanut gallery characters where, um, where they're, like, the catty, like, parents. I think one is supposed to be... Coded for gay, but they never like specify any preferences or whatnot. It's just he's flamboyant, and then he and then two other moms, and they're just all like like they admit to hate watching uh, Anna Kendrick's vlog. It's it's such a weird. They're such weird characters, and then they. I feel like they're just so out of place. After I mean, they're dropped from the movie until the, the until the climax. And they're brought in so haphazardly. Like, it's it's so weird how they're utilized in the movie. I don't know if that's from the book or if that's an addition for the movie to be like, well, why don't we... We should use these characters one more time before the movie ends. And it's not great. But the... the, the 
selling point for this movie is Anna Kendrick and Blake Lively. Their chemistry is like magnetic. They are in sync with each other on screen. And this definitely had it definitely coded lesbian. Uh if not bisexual. There's definitely that there's definitely that going on for it. It's it for us. I mean, before the thriller stuff starts happening, you almost wonder if Blake Lively and Anna Kendrick are gonna hook her, are gonna actually like hook up. It never. It's it. I you know I'm not gonna say that. It. I wish it did. I wish it may have gone that way instead of just being coded gay. But have but at the same time, like hey, you know what? Uh, that's just the that's just the something for a future writer too. They 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 are the next one to um, take that mantle and then yes, make it over, take it from being subtext to the text. Just have it be you know a lesbian relationship budding between these two moms. Um, yeah, it's it's real. I <laughs> this was the last one I saw for the weekend. And it was a great high note to end on. It is genuinely a phenomenal. Uh, it's a nice. It's a nice step up from Paul Feig, who um, has kind of had a bit of a rough patch there. The Ghostbusters movie, while so, while there is a fan base for it, never uh, didn't do too well for him. Uh, and well, well, what's been, what's Paul Feig been up to since that? I think that was his last movie. Uh, he's been producing. I know he was a producer on the short-lived. Um, Joel McHale's show for Netflix. But, yeah, I, I think this is... Yeah, I think his last movie was um, the Ghostbusters uh, reboot. As an actor, director. Um, he did some... He directed Jimmy Kimmel stuff for the Oscars. Uh, oh, no, he produced the Ghostbusters reboot. He directed a short for it, but he produced it mainly. He wasn't the director. His last directed movie was Spy. So, so yeah, he's more. He's been more of a producer. He's been in more of a producing role, uh, and so this is his return to directing after Spy, which was three years ago. And he is able. Here's the thing: he is able to handle um, d- uh, dark. Comedy and th- like that's the thing. You think of Paul Feig, you think of Bridesmaids, you think of a lot of the Melissa McCarthy movies, The Heat, and um, uh, the Ghostbusters reboot, which is very broad humor. Apparently, he produced the Peanuts movie, uh, Nurse Jackie, The Office. Um, he was a couple of freaks and geeks. So he's he's. There, you know, even on Joel McHale, where he was an executive producer and a, and a guest appear, get, you know, a guest, you know, would guest on stuff. He is definitely he has been, you know, his style of comedy is very broad, very um, mainstream. He's not exactly, you know, he's very farce, not, not not so much farcical, but like like slapsticky. Uh, so to have him go not only direct a a good thriller, like a good mystery movie. But to tackle more dark, you know, much darker elements that he's that he normally does is 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 a good is a nice way for him to you know stretch his wings, try new things, try new stuff. He's a, he does uh, dark comedy pretty well. I'd be interested to see if he does it again. So far, he seems to be doing a sequel to Spy in the Heat, 
as well as something called Girls Code for TV, uh, which is self-centered tech CEO teams up with community building social entrepreneur to form an all-women tech company. Could be good. I do like that he he's very he's he is um, very much about producing female-centric um, movies and very very female-centric uh, stories. That aren't specifically, you know, the, the the stuff you normally get when a man writes for women's uh, media. It's very, it's not like the best. It's not always the best, but he's def- he the idea that he wants to pu- to push more females in starring roles and in having good stories for them. I you know I applaud him for that. And the simple favor is another you know another point for that because while there is definitely. It's it's part like dark romantic story with mystery thriller elements and just, but it's all like the humor in this. It's 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 like cut you with a machete uh, levels of edge. There is a lot of harshness in this movie, so be prepared for that. This is I think it's an R rated movie and it earns that R rating. Is it R rated or is it PG? I, no, it has to be R rated. They 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 drop swear words. Throughout the whole thing, uh, so yeah, it earns that R rating between the language and the and the and just the um, the 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 themes that are going on here. It's really I I, I highly recommend you go see it. Um, shout out to uh, Anna Kendrick and Blake Lively. I would love to see them in another thing uh, opposite each other. They're they have great chemistry together, and more Henry Golden is, is a good thing. It may not be the. Yeah, it's definitely not going to be the best thing of the year, but it, I'm glad I saw it. Eight pounds, fourteen ounces. Such a weight when you were born. First time I looked in your eyes, I knew you were going to be bigger than me. I knew your life was going to be bigger than mine. Look at this, Dad. Look how we're living. Let's hustle big. I know the players, man. I know the game. Hey, come on, Dad. I can do this. But we can do this. We can fix our lives and be a family again. What do you say? Ask yourself this. Would you believe a 15-year-old kid was working for the federal government? But he was. Whoa! Whoa! Hey. What? You all got him? Now, as I mentioned, this was meant to be the August release for Studio 8 and Sony Pictures. Studio 8, this is their second uh, film to their name. Their previous one was last month's Alpha. And last minute, Sony Pictures decided to swap the release dates and make this movie, the September release, an Alpha the August release, and I think that ultimate. I think Alpha was doomed just because Sony kept delaying it, and eventually just dumping it in August. And I think they had more faith in this one because it's a biopic about a very interesting character, a very interesting person, uh, Ricky Worsha, Rick Rick Worsha Jr. I believe, uh, who is best known. By the name White Boy Rick, and he was a you know 
14 year, years old, he got roped in to working for the FBI, dealing drugs. Then he became, you know, he was running, you know, he's running uh, arms deals with his dad. Uh, and he eventually became uh, a, a cocaine dealer and kingpin in 1980s Detroit. Uh, all before he, all before he reached the age of uh, accountability, before he ever turned eighteen, he was a drug dealer and an informant turned um, turned you know, cocaine kingpin, cocaine kingpin, uh, and this was all between nineteen eighty four and nineteen eighty seven. Uh, yeah, Richard Worshed Jr., uh, White Boy Rick, and. This is a this is from the director of seventy one, which was um, another biopic. Jan Demange, uh, French director, best known for Top Boy, which I'm not familiar with. It seems to be a series. I think it's French. Um, let me see languages and technical information. Uh, UK. Okay, it's a so it's a British. Uh, series Top Boy, um, and his last, but his last movie was seventy one from twenty fourteen, and that one it was deals with a, it's another British um, story. So he's a French director who's mainly done stuff with uh, Brit in Britain, and in seventy one, um, I think it's dur- I think it's when uh, Brit it's during the troubles between Britain and Ireland. A young, disoriented British soldier is accidentally abandoned by his union following a riot on the deadly streets of Belfast. Yeah, so it's dealing with the Troubles. And that one had Jack O'Connell and Jack Loudon uh, and and Sean Harris. Uh, some, well, you know, so, so it's a, I think my British listeners can attest to whether or not it's good. I haven't, I wasn't able to see it. But uh, this is his next movie and his first, I think, American uh, production, uh, and it and it's it, I think it's good. The guy ha- definitely has a lot of talent, and here we have um, Matthew McConaughey as Richard Wirsch Senior, and he is kind of like the bedrock of the movie. He is Matthew McConaughey is just phenomenal actor. Here he plays a down on his luck blue collar dad, just trying to make ends meet, and he's doing so kind of unscrupulously, and. Seeing his kids kind of struggle in poverty and and dealing with things like you know dr- drugs and you know crime and whatnot, and unfortunately they're under investigation by two FBI agents played by Jennifer Jason Lee and Rory Cochran, uh, who try to uh, use Matthew McConaughey's Richard Wershed Senior to get to the to the higher up drug kingpins, and so meanwhile Rick. Junior is getting roped up into working with a local drug, a local drug kingpin, uh, Johnny Lilman Curry, played by Jonathan Majors in the movie, and being used by the FBI as an informant. And after after a uh, little man's um, after his whole uh, uh, operation is is taken down. Uh, Rick beca- Rick decides to take to take the lead afterwards and become the kingpin in Little Man's stead, and unfortunately that led him into trouble with the law, which uh, which he, in, in which he tried to cop a plea with the FBI agents who initially got him into dealing drugs, 
Uh, but I guess the whole thing is that the FBI actually had this 14-year-old first making drug deals by being the buyer and then selling the drugs with the assistance of a detective on the uh, DPD uh, narcotics force played by Brian Tyree Henry. And so the FBI, the authorities, the authorities, the FBI and the DPD have this 14-year-old son of a arms dealer selling drugs in order to get to the higher-ups in, oper- in, dr- in the drug dealing operation in Detroit. And, yeah, so, and then, and so when Rick gets finally caught uh, dealing, you know, dealing drugs as the king, as this new kingpin at 16, at, I think 15, almost 16, he, 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 he uh, makes a deal with the FBI to bring down corrupt cops. Even the mayor of Detroit got roped in and they just left it, let him rot in jail. All the dudes that he helped bring down, uh, you know, the FBI, he helped the FBI bring down and bring it to jail. They got out before Rick Jr. did. The corrupt officials that were arrested by the FBI got out of jail sooner than the informant who helped bring them in. And yeah, this, this if it wasn't obvious, this movie is about how the system is busted. The system is broken. And it's it's garbage. It's a fl- it, you know, like on the alleyways of Detroit, it's flaming garbage that needs to just be put out of its misery. Sorry, I, I'm not a fan of the of the of our current system. I know a lot of people aren't, but yeah, this is a story of how the system screwed over a a teenage boy for their own benefit, and then. No one was ever held accountable for screwing over this kid's life and making him spend 30 years in prison. He did not get out until last year. Rick Worsher Jr. did not get out until his 46th birthday, I believe. Until he was 46. He was in his 40s when he was finally released from prison. Now, despite the fact that he is supposedly... You know, was should have been given leniency for helping the FBI the whole time. You know, by being an infor- by being a a plant by the FBI and an informant early on, and then helping them bring down the corruption in Detroit in the nineteen in nineteen eighty seven. They still said, "Yeah, nah, you're still gonna rot in prison." And in fact, he stayed in prison longer than the people he brought down. Yep. The system's fine. No, the system works. Clearly. The system clearly works, you guys. The system clearly works. Obviously. So, yeah. Yeah. If it wasn't obvious, I'm not a fan. Yeah, the cops are clearly the bad guys in this movie. Even more so than the drug dealers. Yeah, the cop... In these kind of movies... You never trust a pig. That's all I'm saying. Uh, that being said, this movie is definitely very good. I can definitely see Sony wanting to push this for the award season because McConaughey is great as per usual. Um, you got great performances uh, from Belle Powley as Rick's um, sister who suffers from crack addiction. 
even the even the new kid. This is his first movie. Richie Merritt, his first movie is in a major motion, major biopic about and about this teenage drug drug kingpin, and he does a good job. He's pretty good. I'm interested to see how he follows this up because I think he may have potential. You know. And then, of course, you've got, um, as I mentioned, Jennifer Jason Lee and Rory Cochran as the FBI agents. R.J. Seiler and Jonathan Majors are part of the outfit that Rick gets started with. And then you've got Bruce Dern and Piper Laurie as his grandparents. And they even, for the, for the bit parts that they're in the movie, they are excellent. I love Bruce Dern, still amazing. And Piper Laurie, for as little, you know, for however little she's in here, she's it's great to see her again. And this really is a must see movie. I don't think it's gonna. I I I can't see this as my as one of my favorites of the year. But it's I I can highly highly recommend it for people. I can definitely recommend people go see it, especially if you're into if you want to see the kind of kind of story. I mean. Obviously, liberties are probably going to be taken, and I, it's hard to say. You know, it's it's hard to say uh, what the, you know how much is truth and how much is fiction without going into the actual details of the case. But suffice to say, I wouldn't be surprised if the FBI uh, left a fourteen-year-old kid from Detroit, a sixteen-year-old kid from Detroit, to rot in prison for thirty years, uh, despite helping them out, because that's how the FBI does. That's just that's just how they are. FBI, CAA, that's just that's just how they roll. You're only good until you're not. And then once you're not good to them anymore, just like any other criminal outfit, you're dead to them. And 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 and, and even and if they and yeah, let's be real. If they weren't working for the act the people who make the laws, they would be a criminal outfit because that's how they roll. So yeah, uh White Boy Rick Highly recommend you go see it. It's it's a really compelling movie to watch, and it's a really well made movie. Like I said, there's only some minor things. I think uh, there are definitely some scenes where um, Richie feels like he's very wooden. You can kind of see the amateur his amateur nature. But when he get when he's able to deliver some great lines, he's good. And then he's able to, he he does kind of suffer from having like no that no acting face, like just. Kind of, it's like the Ryan Gosling thing where they forget that they're you know they they're not actually emoting; they're just standing there. So, so he he I, he has potential. I'll definitely say that. So it's it, I'll it's we'll have to see how he follows it up. But I'm keeping my eye out for Richie Merritt. And I said, and I and if you haven't yet, go check out uh, White Boy Rick. I highly recommend it. So. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll finish out the rest of the reviews. The four of you enter a dark room lit only by two torches. In between the torches stands a robed figure in a long, with a long white beard. Greetings, travelers. The fate of the realm is in your hands. What is it that you require? Uh, well, I was just saying that I probably could use an insurance policy on the realm as a whole, because if we're the ones saving it, uh, I, I may be getting a chance to cash that in. You know, I was just wondering, um, how intelligent can some of these creatures be before it gets weird if I eat them? Pit DM would be really nice. Oh, I guess it's my turn. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> no, keep that yeah, use that one. 
join our bumbling protagonists as they try not to die and maybe save the world in the process. Welcome to Tragic Missile. to reiterate something just because a movie deals with religious themes and centers on spirituality doesn't make it a bad movie i was accused of this by a random user on stardust which i shouldn't let bother me but i do want to reiterate for listeners that religious movies aren't inherently bad in fact there are some really great religious movies that i can recommend that i still would can go back and rewatch. uh Namely, Prince of Egypt. I think that's still just the best thing DreamWorks' animation has ever made. Uh, Doubt, both the play and the movie, are very well well done, uh, very well done, compelling drama centering on faith and the Catholic Church. And Philomena, I, I still think Philomena is a phenomenal story about uh, spirituality and faith in the in the wake of just. Some of the worst, some of the worst actions of the church outside of the molestation cases. So you can make good movies, and even older movies, the Ben Hur, the the nineteen fifties Ben Hur movie, still a just just amazing movie to witness, even if it was illegal to make by today's standards, and helped although it did help pave the way for you know animal safety regulations and whatnot. Ugh, those horses just woof. Horses and the extras, just man, man, making movies back in the day was was like the wild west. Apparently, like what rules? We don't have rules. Um, so yeah, but that's the thing: having religious themes and being religious in nature doesn't make you a bad movie. Thing is, Pure Flix doesn't make good movies; they make Christian movies, and very rarely for me do. Pure Flix movies ever get higher than a single star. A lot of times they are just straight out zeros. I, if I could give them zero out of five, zero out of whatever, I would because they don't they don't earn it. They, in fact, I would probably give them negative ratings because of how bad they are and how 
no, actually like heinous they are in nature because they're just so out of touch with stuff. I mean, they're, these, these are the people who make God's Not Dead act like that's compelling cinema. So yeah, these are not good filmmakers. And that's the thing. The person on Stardust who called me out was his, the, their entire favorite movies list on Stardust. I think 80%, if not like 90% of them, were all featured on god-awful movies. They are not good movies. War Room... Uh, fireproof, uh, uh, courageous, uh, uh, I can only imagine just Paul, the Paul, apostle of Christ. These aren't good movies that they're listing. So yeah, there are good movies that have religious themes to them. They, but this person is clearly not a, a, a good judge of taste when it comes to movies, because the movies that they pick as their favorites all have a similar element. Conservative evangelicalism. Conservative evangelism. I've, the eloquence the always throws me off. The conservative evangelism. That's, that's the kind of movies they want. That's clearly what they have. And they are mad at me for not liking them. And for saying that they are bad movies. And you can like things all you want. But on a technical level, the movies that are the movies that this person likes so much, they are not good movies. They are very cheap. They have, a lot of them have a lack of understanding of how drama works, basic filmmaking techniques. They are not well-made movies from a technical from a technical level. And the ones that are don't have good storytelling. The writing is bad, and the del- and the acting is bad. So, on a very technical level, the movies are not good. But they're not designed to be good. They're designed to preach to their audience. So, I don't care if you're a member of that audience and you love these movies. Fine, go ahead, enjoy them. Far be it for me to tell you what to enjoy. But don't get mad at me. And he, this person, I say he because they use dude in their username. So I, that my mind still goes directly to male. But this could be any any uh, identity of person. It, the person is random. That's all that matters. So this random person, this random user, comes after me, accuses me of pushing an agenda, of having a bias. And that I shouldn't talk about movies that I don't like. If you don't like it, don't talk about it. That's not how dis- that's not how the discourse works. I'm not going to go and tell people who like Man of Steel and then don't like the Avengers to stop to not talk about it because I disagree with them. They can talk about it all they want. Because guess what? I don't have to hear them out. I do not owe them my attention. This person is not owed. I'm not owed their attention. I do not require their attention, nor do I deserve their attention. They are giving it to me free, freely, 
because I disagree with because I disagree with what they define as good movies, and that's fine. But that's not. But you can't be mad at me for not liking Christian movies because that's not what I. Because when I go to see movies, I'm not looking to be preached at. I am looking for compelling stories, great performances, solid production work. I'm looking for for certain levels of quality. And Christian movies, especially Christ exploitation movies, have don't provide that for me. They do not provide what I seek in my movie going experience. They may for you. They may they may provide exactly what you seek from a movie going experience. Have at it. Enjoy yourself. The one thing I will say, the one thing I always want to reiterate is that you should go seek out films that you enjoy. Whether it be for ironic reasons that you like it because it's so bad or for genuine reasons that you like it because it is so good or provides you something that you seek from your entertainment. Seek out what you enjoy and embrace it. I am somebody who enjoys the Marvel Cinematic Universe, My Little Pony, and Pacific Rim. Old school Godzilla movies are my jam. Not all the stuff I like is good. I can admit that. But I like what I like. And I'm not here to tell you what to like. I'm here to tell you what I think. And that's why I always... I've been op- that's why I've been very open about wanting listeners to give provide feedback. I want to hear what you think. I want to have a conversation with you. I want to know that you're listening... And I want to know if you agree, why you agree. If you don't agree, why don't you agree? I want to hear from you, the audience. I like having that discourse, as long as it's a healthy discourse. That's, that's the best part about being a movie fan, is to have that open discourse. And I tell you what, uh, I think it was last week that I said I wanted to apologize to uh, Matthew Buck about, about blowing up on him. Dude didn't even, dude didn't even remember what I said. Water under the bridge. And I feel better because I wanted to keep that healthy. Having that healthy discourse is always good. And I, sh- and, and I should not, especially for something as minute as a joke I did not find funny. Humor is subjective as much as people have used. God, what was the, who was the thing? There was a thing going around that's saying humor is subjective, humor is subjective. And it was like the excuse for uh, a bad joke. Um, I forget what it was. Uh, oh, you know what it was? Some guy reviewed NSP negatively and he said, humor is subjective. And then his, even his fans were like, well, yeah, humor is subjective, man. I mean, yeah, yeah, absolutely, humor is subjective. Which is true, but the more people were repeating it in regards to him not liking an NSP album, it was, it, it's like the words had no meaning anymore. So yeah, I, I have a negative reaction to the terms humorous objective because I saw so many people just regurgitating that like it was almost Pavlovian uh, after after P, after his uh, NSP review got dislike bombed because he openly displayed the thumbs down. I'm not gonna say who it is. I don't I I don't care to say. So I, but. A patron of his requested uh, he review the NSP album. He didn't like it, and then his thumbnail was him giving the thumbs down. 
And then he, and then he's, and then he, yo, he, he, then he complains about being disliked, bombed, and people not caring about his video. And, and like, I feel like if he didn't like it, as long as you know, if the thumbnail was him being like indifferent, like shrugging his shoulders or something, showing that he didn't, it wasn't his thing, but that he didn't, but that he wasn't outwardly hostile. I feel like that what people his video would have gone down better in that sense, but who cares? Who cares anymore? That's that's old news. Any that's old new that's old internet news for those who are even familiar with what happened. Uh, we're getting very off topic, but I wanted to cover the fact that I don't mean to judge you for enjoying Christian movies or for enjoying the movies that I dislike. If you enjoyed any of the movies I put on my least favorite of the year list, you're free to enjoy them. And you should not feel like you're under attack for enjoying a thing that I dislike. I'm just merely stating what I like and dislike. That's all. That's all I'm saying. I bring this up because the movie in question that he that this person commented on was this movie. Unbroken Path to Redemption. And I will say this. I will give the movie credit. It is the best thing to come out of Pureflix Entertainment. And the best that Pureflix Entertainment can do is, is be absolutely mediocre. Because that's the thing. Even the 2014 Angelina Jolie movie Unbroken was wildly mediocre. It was not... Jolie is not a compelling director, and despite his and the story deserved a better filmmaker. I feel like uh, Spielberg or even um, trying to think of really good biopic directors. Like nobody's coming to mind off the top of my head, but there are people who can handle really good, compelling drama like Zamperini's story. Jolie was not a good director cho- directing choice. She is not a good director. Especially for that, like, that movie deserved, that, that story deserved a better movie. And I will admit that. And this is the second half of the story from the book. And that's, I saw this with my mom. Uh, we ended up seeing this because she has since retired and she wants to spend some more time. And she, she started to accumulate uh, Cinemark points. And so she wanted to go, wanted to go to the movies with me and... Time being what it was, we were we were able to see this one, and it, she and she did want to see this because the book Unbroken deals with two things. Zamper, I mean, three things: Zamperini's run in the Olympics, and then his um, capture by the Japanese in World War II, and his time in the internment in the inter, well, not we had the internment camps, but his time as a POW, and then his return home. His post-traumatic stress disorder that led to violent alcoholism and his eventual um, uh, sort of his rebirth as as a evangelical Christian after after going to a Billy Graham revival. So being caught up by uh, Billy Graham, Billy Graham's um, evangelism was an important part of this guy's story. It is what led him to led him to improve his own life after the war and become who he was best known in the in, his, in the last half of his life because in the, his initial half was Olympic hero becomes a POW 
and and then after the war is when he's he has his breaking point, his alcoholism, his inner de- fight, his post traumatic stress leading to having so many inner demons that 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 he that are that go untreated until he be, until he seeks refuge in uh, the church of Billy Graham in his sort of evangelist practices, and I think psychotherapy would have been better, but apparently they weren't providing that. Nah, they were providing electroshock therapy and uh, sleeping drugs. Mental health of the 1940s, everybody. So it's any wonder that the dude had to go to Billy Graham in order to uh, get get the actual get any actual help. Uh, but yeah, um, Louis Zipperini's story is is ripe for a good movie. We didn't get we had two movies about him, and both of them were wildly mediocre. This one even less so because it's also cheaper and and has le- and has fewer good actors in it. This time around, we have Samuel Hunt, who is best known uh, for being a cast member in the Chicago franchise that uh, Dick Wolf created, the PD, Fire, Emergency, Law, that whole franchise that's, that's been going on. And he plays Louis Zamperini. He is the best actor in the entire movie. He gets, he gets how to deliver drama and pain and emotion. And everyone else is just okay to being outright bad like they just aren't good act there are some plenty not good actors in this movie and it doesn't help that the writing is really lazy it's really and the problem is what should have been the third act of the actual louis zamperini movie is turned into 90 minutes of him Suffering from alcoholism, suffering from post-traumatic stress, and then eventually going to the Billy Graham revival and becoming better. This did not need to be a 90-minute movie. This needed to be the last 30 minutes of his, of his actual movie, but Angelina Jolie left that part out for whatever reason. Whether it's Christian Erasure, if you want to claim that, or if it's just she chose not to, she chose to focus on the first half of his life. Either way... She, it was the bad. It was the wrong choice. You could have easily done a two-hour movie where the where the first act is him training for the Olympics, and then the second act is him is him fighting in World War II, becoming a POW, and then his, the third act is him returning from the war, suffering from post traumatic stress, see, getting no help from the VA, and event, becoming becoming violently alcoholic and abusing his wife, and then eventually eventually seeking redemption. Um, but through the, you know through Billy Graham's uh, revivals, that that's that's the movie. That's it, this could have just been one movie. I don't know why Universal didn't just make it one movie. My mom had an interesting idea though. She postulated that your Universal, the person who the company that holds the rights to the Louis Zamperini story, and one of the and the main distribu- and the main distribution company for this movie. Could they have split the story? Because this is one half was the was the Olympics and then the POW internment, his you know his POW um, uh, treatment, his treatment as a POW in Japan, and then the second half of the book was his return home, his his PTSD, his alcoholism, and then eventually his revival. That second half is what he is is the person. Louis Zamperini came to be. And so this is the story he probably wanted to be told. 
and it was left out of the initial movie and had no reason to be left out ultimately this is part of this man's life story it's like with the upcoming neil armstrong movie where they leave out the fact that he planted the american flag on the moon the hell i really hope that that gets people to realize what i've already known is that the director of la la land and um Damien Chazelle, the director of La La Land and Whiplash, is wildly overrated. He's just a hipster douchebag. Because clearly, he is... I really hope people begin to realize that he's just wildly overrated. Because I've known that from day one. Whiplash is overrated. La La Land is wildly overrated. And I hope people begin to realize with this first man movie that just Chazelle is not a good filmmaker. But that's... Once again, that's just me. You may disagree... You can disagree all you want. Um, back to the actual, back to this movie, back to this movie though, um, I, I feel like I'm talking in circles because I have nothing to say to this. Yes, it was the best Pure Flix Entertainment has given us, but that still means it's cheaply made. The only time they pay for extras are for the opening scene, opening and closing scenes in Japan and for the actual Billy Graham revival. Otherwise, this movie feels like it was act- it was post-Rapture with how empty it is. And the only good actor is Samuel Hunt as Louis Zamperini, who does have to deal with a lot of, you know, the nightmares and the alcoholism and just his trauma, dealing with his trauma that's going untreated. And... And yet, meanwhile, everyone else around him is really bad act, is really terrible. You know who's the worst, though? Just by his his prominence and his the need for his prominence in the story is the actor playing Billy Graham. He not only does not look like Billy Graham, he does not capture any of the actual charisma of Billy Graham. And I will admit, for a man I wildly disagree with, I say wildly a lot this this review. I'm gonna, I, I don't know why that's my go-to word, but for a man I vehemently disagree with on a lot of things, the man was charismatic. There's a reason people flocked to his revivals. The dude knew how to draw a crowd. He knew how to speak to the audience. Billy Graham was a dynamic preacher. That much is certain. He was an influential... I, I, w- I would suffice to say that any evangelical preacher working today... Is trying to is taking pages from the Billy Graham playbook. I will I would not doubt that for a second. And yet, for a man as charismatic and compelling as Billy Graham, as, as the actual Billy Graham, none of that is in this movie. You know, the whole reason you made it a Christian movie, the whole reason that the you know the whole impetus for his um you know his, him him seeking redemption and him trying to deal with his inner demons and turning away from his alcoholism. Yeah, that guy, he, he, he sucks in this movie. He has no charisma. He looks nothing like Billy Graham. And I don't, I, there's no, like, the, and what the worst part is, the end of the movie, the epilogue features footage of the actual Billy Graham. And you get to see just how not alike the actor and the actual character and the actual person are. The actual per- the actual footage of Billy they would have been better off playing archive footage of Billy Graham than hiring the actor that they did because that's how bad he is. 
that's not even to say, and that's not even tackling the, the all of the lazy tropes of so many Christian movies that are treated in this. And what is supposed, and even though it is his life story, the way it's handled is the laziest, fastest way in order to handle it because they have no sense of nuance. The people writing this movie don't know how to write good screenplays, and that and that's the thing though. The stuff that deals with Louis Zamperini's nightmares. The effects work is decent there for the most part. Samuel Hunt is great as Louis Zamperini. The story is ripe for for a good movie. And yet, despite having two movies to tell one man's story, both of them are just the the exempl- just exemplary mediocre. You know, ex- ex- they're emblematic of being. Middle of the road, completely mediocre, and then one was even one was lesser just because they didn't put the money into it, just because they wouldn't make it a a a, a, a big budget. They wouldn't put the same amount of money that they put into the previous movie. It is probably because this production company is not actually Universal Studios. It is Pure Flix Entertainment. And as much as that person claimed that Universal's putting the money, Pure Flix is just financing. Pure Flix is the first studio to come up in the credits. Pure Flix Entertainment shows up before Universal Pictures in this movie. Yeah, this is a Pure Flix movie. Nice try, bud. Nice try. So... If you like the story of Louis Zamperini and you want to know more, read the book. Laura Hillebrand, I think, wrote the book about Louis Zamperini, Unbroken. Read the book. Skip the movies. Maybe they'll do a better one down the line where it actually gets the entire story in a single movie. But Universal completely dropped the ball on this one. They made a mediocre first half of his life and a really cheap, lazy second half. So, (sighs) yeah. It is what it is. A Steven Spielberg film. Since is a feeling all over the park. Yeah, that's nice. Gotta go. An adventure. Look out! Down! I can't get Jurassic Park back online. 65 million years in the making. Jurassic Park. As much as A Simple Favor is the best... Of the new releases this weekend, it's not the best movie I saw this weekend. Because Fathom Events was putting on a 25th anniversary showing of Jurassic Park. And that is technically the best thing I saw in theaters this weekend. Because, come on, it's Jurassic Park, man. And so I did talk about the movie uh, in regards to the 3D showing um, they did in 2013 as part of the 20th anniversary, I believe. Um, And... Uh, still holds up then. Uh, the 3D conversion was actually pretty decent. Um, it hasn't been, I haven't seen it advertised since though. I think that that was at the height of the 3D, it was still going on during the 3D craze after Avatar and they, people pretty much dropped that for the most part. And it wasn't until this time around that I started to notice some more of the wrinkles in this movie. After 25 years, the CG is definitely starting to show some of its age. You can, if you know, if you know what to look for in your CG, you can see where some of the uh, the little bits of the little you can see where the line work is, so to speak. You can see the differentiation between CG and um, live action. At the same time, most of the CG does hold up. 
Uh, the use of you know shadow and uh, adverse weather effects definitely helped to hide some of the stuff. Um, but even the stuff in the day, like the T Rex bit with the Gallimimus, still holds up. Most of the Gallimimuses are pretty are are, are hold up. Uh, the only ones that really didn't hold up uh, upon on this viewing, and it may have just been the print. Uh, but they were the initial Brachiosaurus uh, reveal. Uh, there's a there's a shot of the Brachiosaurus while they're in the treetops. The one the one where the one sh- and that was always kind of a shot that you could tell you could if you knew CG you could kind of tell it wasn't fully rendered. Uh, but that was the one where the Brachiosaurus knees is on Lex, and then some of the Raptor stuff in the climax. You can kind of. You, you can see uh, the CG work there. Uh, you can start the CG showing some of its age. And it may just because CG has come so far since 1993 that you can know, you can see the differences because it's become a bit... It's been able to become almost hyper-realistic. And so the a more simpler version even you know even back in 1993 what looks it looks wildly different from what we get with the big budget movies big budget cg in today's movies and then of course as a dino nerd I, there are some things i i i take on bridge with why weren't they called Deinonychuses instead of like why why velociraptor because they like the name better velociraptors and Deinonychus are they they are clearly referring to Deinonychus why is it why is it Deinonychus and not yeah why is it Velociraptor and not Deinonychus and of course the whole T Rex don't move you can't see if you don't move meanwhile the T Rex literally breathes on breathes in uh, Grant and Lex so it it can't see can it not smell like even now the T Rex is known for having a very highly developed sense of smell and that's part of why. So many paleontologists for the longest time thought of them as scavengers only because they had better olfactory senses, better suited, they presumed, for uh, for um, uh, seeking out carrion. And yet, meanwhile in this movie, apparently the T-Rex doesn't know how smell works. How was it a great hunter again? Like, how, how does this work? Like, is it just a superstition that... It's such a bad. It, it is, uh, you know, it is the, one of the weakest lines and plot points in the entire movie, and it, it's it isn't even held to the mo- for the most part after that one scene. You know, after that one scene, it's never really brought up again. Uh, so yeah, but once again, that's all Dino Nerd stuff. That's only stuff that I would care about. Laura Dern is still amazing. Laura Dern is. You know, it, she's a big mood in this movie. <laughs> to, you know, to take a quote from the kiddies, uh, she's a big. You know, her as a just beautiful, you know, su- uh, intelligent, you know, doctor of paleo botany uh, who is capable of being like an almost Indiana Jones level adventurer when the need calls for it. She, you know, she is. I would I would not be surprised if people's sexual awakenings were brought on by Laura during a Jurassic Park. Let's be real. Let's be real here. Um, not to mention, uh, and if it, and if it wasn't uh, Laura Dern, it was Jeff Goldblum because Jeff Goldblum is oozing with sex appeal. This this whole whole movie, 
He really it's it, it just it, it, it's like he's you know he it, much like he act all of the sweat he has in the later half of the movie. That's his sex appeal. That's just it just sweat it just dribbles out of him like sweat. It, yeah, <laughs> the the you'd think he's not a sex symbol you would think of, but yet yet there and yet there it is. There it is. <laughs> um, the story still holds up. This time around, I did notice that, you know, people, like, there's a there's a big thing that people, that pickers would bring on. I think Cracked did a whole article about it. For a man who spared no expense, how come he didn't pay his IT guy? He, he did pay his IT guy. And, in fact, it's revealed in the movie, in the dialogue, that Nedry is dealing with financial issues. And he he is... The whole reason he betrays InGen is because he wasn't given a raise in order to deal with his own financial problems. Hammond calls him out on it. They are your problems. You know, I'm not here. I'm not here to help. You know, help you deal with your financial issues. I'm here to pay you for your work, and I believe I am paying you a good deal. I'm sure he's not paying him pittance. I mean, he's probably paying them the same much as he pays anybody. Probably, you know, a couple, probably a hundred thousand dollars a year. Maybe. Yeah, I, he's, I would not be surprised if he paid Nedry a very high amount of sum, a very high sum for his work. It's just Nedry is bad with money, and it's never quite revealed. Maybe it is in the book why Nedry is in, is in so much debt that he needs multi-millions of dollars. Maybe he's just greedy. For all we know, he could just be greedy. Like, he wants more out of life than what he, than the really nice sum he's getting from InGen, and he wants, and he wants more money. So, in an act of greed, he gets, you know, he gets people killed and puts, and, and, and brings down an entire multi-million dollar operation. For, you know, for like, you know, for four million dollars, he brings down what would have, Raked in uh, probably billions for InGen, <laughs> but but hey, he wasn't getting that money, so he needed to get his beak wet, and he ultimately got himself killed because good. Screw you, Newman. <laughs> Newman. Still haven't seen Seinfeld. I only know the I know the, all the references, but I've never seen the show. Uh, but yeah, I, I, yeah. So I mean, there was things that I started to notice this time. I definitely having seen. Several kid, several kid actors this weekend. You forget how good uh, the Tim, the actors playing Tim and Lexi are. They are some of the best kid actors uh, ever put on screen. They they nail these performances, and I think it's just because Spielberg knows how to direct child actors. He's he he's had he has a familiarity with them. He knows how to get performances out of them, and you see that in this movie. Um. You know, like I said, Laura Dern, Sam Neill, Sam Neill, iconic. The late uh, Richard Attenborough. It's, it's some. I never noticed he was Scottish. Uh, I paid more. I, I caught the lines now, and I even caught some of the some of it in his accent. Um, he he was definitely trying for a bit of like mixed accent, like he was a Scottish man who was raised in uh, raised in Britain, I guess. But he, they mentioned he was Scottish, and I never noticed that about him. But in the, in the initial time. Um, so yeah, it's little things like that. Um, the fact that they introduce, they explain how DNA works for the audience by using a, a theme park attraction to explain it. Nice touch. Um, 
Yeah, I think there's just so much of this movie. So much of the setup for this movie is is all payoff. Like even li- like little bits of dialogue here and there. Um, by the you know the whole thing of like Hammond telling Gennaro that you know by the end of the weekend I'll be accepting your apology and that you know it's, it's so much of it is just the, the opening scene. The opening scene of Jurassic Park features foreshadowing between Muldoon and the and the lead raptor, the the big the. The sort of raptor uh, alpha queen, whatever you want to call her, the lead raptor, um, that is set up from the initial, from the jet, from the jump, from the get go. We we see that whole setup, and then by the end, uh, then by the end of Muldoon's uh, time on screen, it's all played out. It's so much of that carried over just from the beginning of the movie. It, 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 I'm, not, I'm acting. You know, I'm, I'm not trying to act like I'm amazed by basic screenwriting, but I'm just saying. What you know? Not so much. There are plenty of, uh, especially later entries that um, in the franchise that don't have that level of sophistication going on. So it's not perfect. You know, there's definitely there's definitely wrinkles in the in this first movie, but those wrinkles. Are, are take, never take away from the overall movie, which is phenomenally well done, and still the best, you know, still the best in the franchise. Um, and this time around for the 25th anniversary, they did have like fan submissions for the iconic scenes that they played before the movie, and it was really sweet to see how all these fans got to share their love of Jurassic Park um, with 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 audiences. And showcase like just them having fun recreating these iconic scenes in various mediums. There were people shooting in live action. There were people uh, including CGI elements. People used stop motion animation. Some people used uh, traditional animation, 2D animation. Some people used puppetry. Some people used uh, felt cutouts animation. It was really, it was really sweet to see people expressing their love of Jurassic Park, and. You know, here's to hoping for, for another 75 years and forever in perpetuity. Love you, Jurassic Park. Salutations, ladies and gentlemen. It's the Popcorn Junkie here for a little Netflix and chat. Oh, right. Now, this time around, I actually got three things that I watched uh, uh, on streaming services this, this past week. Um, the additional one I watched was I found uh, access to... I brought this up on uh, Living in the Stacks, which you'll hear this week... This, uh, this, uh, tomorrow, uh, as, of this record, as of this episode, on the Fahrenheit 451 podcast... You hear, I brought up uh, The Features Wild by Dougal Dixon because I was reading those books that he wrote. And um, so I rewatched The Features Wild. It is, I, I, I love Dougal Dixon. He is, I think, my favorite um, paleontologist just because the extrapolations he makes based on um, his, you know, his studies uh, in evolution and in paleontology. Uh, it have led him to some amazing, like the book after man that uh, it's kind of served as the, um, the 
inspiration for the future is wild is is a wonderful like faux uh speculative uh darwin-esque sort of nature journal chronicling all the different new animals that uh evolved after man after man left the planet and um you know the like all of the major species died out and so they were replaced by Smaller species evolving into fill those niches. So you had like uh, penguins evolving to fill the needs of whales, um, rats evolving into the dominant predators, uh, rabbits evolving into fill to fulfill the needs of uh, deer and antelope. Mar- the way that uh, kangaroos evolved, the ways that porcupines and other rodents evolved, the way that, you know snakes and spiders and birds and fish all evolved. And The Future's Wild takes a more direct idea. I mean, it's not as all-encompassing as After Man, but the, way, the ones that they focus on are beautiful in their, specula- in their speculation. You know, you've got the flish that's the prominent animal in the box art, which is a fish that evolved to fil- fulfill the niche of birds. You've got um, the Toraton, which was a giant dinosaur-like tortoise. Um, the fact that squids became the dominant life form on Earth, and they fulfill, and they became the new primates. Uh, the fact that um, you know the return of the terror birds, as it were, with uh, caracaras evolving into sort of forest raucous style terror birds. Um, uh, the ways that spider, the different types of evolutions for spiders, uh, the man of war that evolved into a giant like sea colony. Um, just all the cool ideas that Dougal Dixon came up with. And it's all based, and once again, it's all based on here are the niches that we know of. Here's what we predict will happen based on trends. So here's, and so with certain species, the way that certain species die out based on our previous studies of extinction events, here's how we predict the niches, what niches will be open and need to be filled, and what animals we believe will evolve to fill those niches. So, um, like their Ice Age one, that where Paris is encompassed in, a, in an Ice Age, uh, in a, you know, in a, in a tundra, uh, you had a wolverine evolve into what is essentially a polar bear. You have gannets, the bir- the gannet birds evolving into whales. You have um, rodents evolving into uh, the into like the big muskox style um, major uh, like herd animal. What was the other one that was in the tundra bit? Um, I think those because I know those were the big ones. Because um, usually there's at least three in every biome that they bring up, and it's still just so wonderfully brilliant in its uh treatment of speculative um evolution and i love that about dougal dixon because he did that for dinosaurs if they had never died out here's how here's how they would fill here's how they would fill the niches of uh of our world Uh, he did that for humans as well man after man uh which i can't exactly recommend just because it's it's a bit bizarre but at the same you know at the same time like yeah it's he really is Something else. Uh, go check out Dougal Dixon's writings. He does a lot of stuff for kids, but he also created that um, this thing I watched, which UK view- listeners may remember: dinosaurs. Fun fact 
and fantasy. It was a British production that d- dealt with Gil the Crocodile, played by um, some guy from Doctor Who. I forget his name. Um, uh, D- yeah, Dill the Crocodile, played by Derek Griffiths, uh, who is best known for... Oh, no, not Doctor Who. Uh, Watership Down, he was Vervain. Uh, but I'm sure he probably was on Doctor Who at some point, right? I mean, he was, Br- he was a British actor. Muzzy in Gondoland. Okay. Super Ted. Dark Towers. Insight. Battle of the Sexes. Don't Drink the Water. Cabbages and Kings. Uh, Marty back together again. On the House. So, I mean, he was a pro- I guess he wasn't. Uh, he's on the Tracy Oldman show. Uh, this piece, So he's still working, even. Uh, Fierce Creatures, the bleak old shop at bleak old shop of stuff. Ooh, he was in that Wesley Snipes movie, Gallow Walkers. Uh, Coronation Street, he's on uh, the recent one. So uh, I guess that maybe this was what threw me off. He was on a show called Doctors. So yeah, he's a asterisk and, and obelix versus Caesar. So I mean, he 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 works. The dude gets work, and. Um, Further Adventures of Super Ted. Apparently he's a character named Super Ted. British um, listeners probably know who that is. Uh, He played Dill the Crocodile. Yeah, I beg your pardon. Uh, He he was a very, very silly, like, um, like puppet crocodile that talked about dinosaurs. Because that was, this was at a time when they, when, um... When uh, when uh, paleontologists believe dinosaurs were closer related to crocodiles than you know birds and whatnot, and they still have a direct linear, you know, there's a definitely a correlation between dinosaurs and crocodiles, but it's not. It's much more. You know, we're seeing much more of a tie between dinosaurs and birds, and it, it's kind of reshaped how we view them as well. Which was also featured in Jurassic Park that I forgot to mention that the idea that dinosaurs turning into birds was still revolutionary at the time and was not backed up until later on with discoveries from China and the further further revelation that dinosaur that that uh, theropod dinosaurs had feathers. Uh at any rate, yeah, do, if you get the chance, you'll probably have to find it on DVD or something. It's not streaming. Uh and you can't even buy it on Amazon, which is what threw me off. Uh but look up uh try to find The Future is Wild. It was an old animal planet uh BBC co co-production documentary uh series. It's really great. See if you can find the one I found the one that originally aired on Animal Planet. If you can find the one there was multiple episodes that featured actual scientists talking about the speculative animals from an from a scientific back from scientific point of view, um seek out that one. If uh the Animal Planet one is an interesting like short uh, like a, you know, like a sum of, but having the extent, extensive knowledge brought up that get, given by those scientists is 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 wonderful, right up my alley. Uh, I also watched, I checked out. Uh, I'm a fan of, for fans of ProZD. Uh, I've been I've been trying to use Verve.co recently, so I re, I caught up on season four of Bravest Warriors. It got way better. The start of season four felt weird because they switched from. Their traditional style of animation to a more flash puppet based animation, and it was really awkward at first. 
it got better as the season went along. So the animation got better as they got used to the new style, and the storytelling just just continued barreling down in its amazingly unique viewpoint of this universe that they've created, this wankiverse, if you will. And if you haven't caught up on season four of Bravest Warriors yet, it's definitely it's not the best season, but it got way better as the season went along. It was really well made, and it, and the, and the finale between uh, the present timeline and the flashback episode they did was excellent, and it makes me very interested to see if they follow it up with a season five. As I on I also watched on Verve, um, as I mentioned, Prozy D's uh, show. Anime Crime Division, which is him and Riley Critchlow as two detectives in New Otaku City. And it's a it was a parody of police procedurals, but centering on anime-based humor. So there's like an episode dealing with Gundam Gundam uh, models. Uh, there's an episode dealing with Yu-Gi-Oh cards. Um, the first season is only like three episodes, and it's kind of weak. Uh, the second season has more of an overarching story. Uh, it's co-created by Freddie Wong, um, you know, YouTuber Freddie Wong, and it's it's definitely uh, I forget I don't I'm not familiar with the other um, anime crimes division. Uh, Riley Rose Critchlow, uh, Dar- Darnell Murphy Jr. is the co-creator along with Freddie Wong, and he is best known for Rocket Jump. The show, Survival of the Dumbest. Uh, I don't know if he's a fellow YouTuber. Uh, but yeah, I, maybe he was a friend of... Uh, yeah, people who are more into that side of YouTube can tell me uh, what the deal is. But the first season was was cute as far... You know, as it dealed with... Um, as it deal as it dealt with like anime tropes and cop drama tropes. The second season, it has better writing... Has 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 a better you know better character dynamics. It really it, it's the better of the two seasons, and it's still going on. Uh, hopefully, and see so hopefully they keep up with season two of Anime Crimes Division. I love ProZD. I love Sungwon Cho. Uh, Sungwon Cho. I, I think that's how you pronounce his name. Uh, yeah, ProZD. I love him. I love his voice acting. I love his channel. He's phenomenal, and I'm glad he's got his own show because he deserves it. The last Verve show I uh, started watching was an old Nickelodeon show. Uh, as you may know, uh, Verve got the rights to the old Nicktoons and as well as the old 90s Nickelodeon shows through Nick Splat. And I've been rewatching Rocco's Modern Life. Rocco's Modern Life still holds up after 20 years. Like, I'm still excited for that... Uh, that TV movie they're supposed to do with them to see. I want to see how they handle the upgrade, the the twenty years of technology changes and societal changes since that first says that first since the show first aired in the nineties. But this, but I think the nice thing was even though it dealt with actual modern day trends of the nineties, most of those have carried over. Deal, you know, things the slice of life stuff that Rocco deals with and the chaotic nature of them all. You know, think you know the ones I watched were like Hef- Heifer's revelation that he was adopted by wolves. Um, Rocco going to the lo- Rocco going to places, the laundromat, the beach, uh, the the grocery store. Um, him looking for work. Uh, so much of Rocco's modern life still holds up, and even like the references are still fun to notice. Um, 
Uh, like, I noticed this in the groceries episode. Um, there's a reference to the Exxon Valdez oil spill in the, in the, in the supermarket episode of Rocco's Modern Life. What kid would understand that reference, you know? Like, that's the best part about Rocco's Modern Life is, is it knew exactly how to slip in references that kids wouldn't get, but are, they would still be funny gags. And then the adults watching would be like, oh my god, I get that reference. That's a, that's amazing. So yeah, um... I will say Verve has an issue with stuttering. Like there, where the playback will stutter and jump back for a second, but before it keeps playing, there's some loading issues. I don't know if it's just the PS4 app I used, or if it does this on the main site as well. But yeah, Verve needs to update some of its um, streaming uh, servers, I guess, or whatever the whatever the problem is on the programming of the apps. But whatever the case. If Verve could up could um, fix its streaming quality, it would be the best one of the best providers. He would probably be, it could I mean it could arguably be a better provider than Netflix in some in some cases. But without but but as long as it stutters like that, and it may just be the PS4 app, which I may have to un you know delete and re-download, um, or or wait for an update. We'll have to wait and see. Uh, so yeah. If you haven't yet, go. If you're a '90s kid, nostalgic for a lot of your old favorite shows, most of them are on Verve uh, through Nick Splat, so you can go check them out now. Uh, and that deals with all the reviews. So let's move on to the to the rest of the the show, uh, starting off with um, ADP in Patreon Corner. And now a stopover on Patreon Corner. This will be the last Patreon corner for a while, just because it. I, I I'm overworking myself for an audience that isn't there yet, and I'd rather just focus more on the sh- gaining an audience for the show and developing an audience for Patreon before I and before I before I focus more on exclusives for an audience that isn't there yet. Uh, so to end off uh, Patreon Corner for right now, I'll still plug, I'll obviously still plug it uh, in the hopes of gaining that audience on, through the show, but for the time being, um, yeah, this will be the last for the Patreon Corner episodes. I, the last episode I did was make a better movie for Alien vs. Predator, and having rewatched it, it's pretty bad, uh, but there's definitely a lot worth salvaging there, Sanaa Lathan as... The protagonist who gains the respect of the Predators is probably the best aspect of the movie itself. And the idea that the Predators, you know, the the idea of, you know, expanding on the relationship between the Predators and the Xenomorphs is definitely worth, you know, there's there's stuff to be, there's stories to be told there. As to why it was such an iconic crossover for decades in the comics and in the video, in video games that just, it never translated well to the screen, sadly. And I, if you want to hear my proposed uh, better version of uh, Alien vs. Predator, you can check that out on Patreon.com. Uh, Patreon.com slash PopcornJunkie. Donate as little as a dollar a month and you can you know, gain access to 10 episodes each of um, Make a Better Movie and Much Along. I did m- release the uh, Make a Better Iron Man three and Much Along for Bambi to the public, and I, and I and I posted those episodes so that people could get a, could get a better example of what to expect from Patreon, and 
the uh, but the other nine for each are going to remain exclusive for patrons until make a better movie uh, until we reach a certain goal point with uh, make a better movie with the with the money bringing brought in through Patreon, and then I'll make make a better movie a weekly show on the main feed. But yeah, I'm not going to worry about any more Patreon content for right now, just because the audience needs to be there for me to put that much energy into it. There's too much time and energy going into a thing, and then I became very intermittent. I lost track of a lot of stuff, and it 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 just didn't become it just stopped being worth it just because nobody was nobody was partaking in what I was giving. So rather, I would much rather save my time and energy until people are actually are, are actually clamoring for the extra content. So for the time being, this will just be a one podcast show for right now, and then as the audience grows, I'll try to expand further out and to add more content through Patreon. But if you want to support the show and have access to the content I've created for Patreon, you can do so at patreon.com slash popcorn junkie. As little as a dollar a month gets you access to all of the reward tiers and all of the previous uh, content I've made available uh, to, you know, for patrons. And now the Popcorn Junkie checks in with this week's box office report. We had multiple dropouts at the top seven, but um, to for but some updates to based on the box office. Uh, the biggest drop we saw was um, God bless the Broken Road from last week dropped from eleven to eighteen. We also saw Operation Finale. And Alpha dropped from the top 10 to 14 and 15. And then dropping out of the top 7 were Disney's Christopher Robin and Mission Impossible Fallout. And the only other... But we also saw Searching drop out of the top 7 to number 8. Uh, premiering at number 9 this week was uh, Unbroken Path to Redemption with $2.3 million. It's hard to say how much it cost. Uh, I don't know if... The Wikipedia, the Wikipedia, the Wikipedia uh, lists lists uh, its budget or not. Well, let's check that out. Um, I have to check while I'm here. I'll check. Uh, the first Unbroken did make back its budget of sixty-five million dollars. Um, let me see if it lists se- sequel. Um, it's not officially a sequel. It's more of a spiritual successor. It's the second half of the book. Uh, that one cost $6 million to make and only made 2.4. So it'll probably make back its budget. I don't see it going anywhere. It does not seem to have the legs for it, <laughs> which is interesting considering, I think people were just, Laura Hillebrand's book was, that's probably the reason why the movie got so much hype was because the book was hot off the presses by that point. And now this is so far after the fact that people have already forgotten it. Uh, so yeah, searching drop from number five to number eight. Uh, so number seven this week was last week's number four, the Meg, which brought in $3.8 million, bringing its domestic total up to 137 million and its global total up to $500 million. It doesn't look like it'll go a full billion dollars, but China really brought this one home. This is probably one of their highest grossing movies of the year. So, the Chinese market is strong. 
And the Meg is proven. The Meg is further proof of that. Uh, dropping down from number two to number six is Peppermint, which brought in $6 million this weekend, bringing its domestic total up to $24 million and rounding it up to $25.6 million with some foreign numbers. Uh, it made back its budget. That was a $25 million budget, so it's not a total flop, but it definitely didn't, didn't break even. Uh, so it, it made back its money, but it made back its budget, but not its marketing. And I can't say I blame people for not Yo, getting into it. Uh, dropping down from number three to number five is Crazy Rich Asians at $8.7 million, bringing its domestic total up to $149.5 million, and the worldwide total of $187 million. So, this is still a bigger... This is playing better, bigger in the States than, than anywhere else, but... That still means that this movie has made six times its budget. So, congratulations, Crazy Rich Asians. Still doing good. Uh, premiering at number four this week was White Boy Rick, which brought in $8.8 million. Uh, its budget is $29 million, so it'll be hard to say how well it does down the line, but maybe it'll get word of mouth, or maybe... You know, some award season buzz will get people to go see it, but for for an opening weekend, it doesn't seem to be doing too good, which is bad sign for Studio Eight because that means that's that would be two flops for them for their first uh, releases. Uh, premiering at number three is A Simple Favor, which brought in sixteen million dollars this weekend and some change, uh, combined with an extra. Bit from the foreign markets, it brought its uh, opening weekend globally up to nineteen point five million dollars. And box office mojo does not have its budget. Let's see if the if the if uh, wiki does twenty million dollars. So it just eked out its budget uh, opening weekend. We'll see if it's if it's able to keep that up. In the following weeks. Uh, if it can manage to scrape together $40 million, it'll break even. Uh, maybe Once again, maybe word of mouth will get people to come back to see these, but, uh, but not too bad for its opening weekend. And then dropping down from its number one slot to number two is The Nun, which brought in $18.2 million, seeing a precipitous drop of 66% from last week. Um... And bringing its domestic total up to $85 million. And its global total up to $228 million on a $22 million budget. Who's to blame this time? We've got Indonesia with $10 million. Uh, Mexico with another $10 million. We've got... Those seem to be the two biggest ones are Indonesia and Mexico. They loved this movie. We also saw the UK with five million, Taiwan with two, uh, Spain with three, uh, and then Brazil. Latin America, the Latin countries and Hispanic countries seem to really dig this. Mexico, Brazil, um, Brazil, Brazil not tech, more Latin than Hispanic, but Spain seemed to dig this movie. Maybe it's the Catholic, maybe it's maybe because of the history of Catholicism there that that drove that drove people to go see it. Those are the big one. Those are the big drivers, though. Uh, it may 
I think there's a. I don't know how uh, Indonesia. Indonesia is the highest grossing of the foreign markets with almost eleven million dollars. But yeah, all all said, the foreign markets really love the nun. So maybe it just plays better to non-English speakers. Would not be the first time. So eh, great, more spinoffs of The Conjuring, and then premiering at number one this weekend. With $24 million is Shane Black's The Predator. And then adding in the foreign markets, uh, we've got a global opening weekend box office of $54 million. Which is very disappointing considering it cost cost $88 million to make. And it'll be interesting to see if it manages to make make back... I'm sure it'll make back its budget unless the foreign markets... uh, you know, really eat this up. I I don't expect this to be a runaway success uh, at all. But who knows? It, it's hard. It's harder to say how things will play in foreign markets anymore. So I'm 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 not I'm willing to accept any outcome at this point. But that that was this weekend's box office. And with the, this weekend out of the way, it's time to look forward to next weekend. Coming this summer. It's Trailer Talk. Rated R starts Friday. This coming weekend is a little bit more up in the air. Up in the air. We've got two major releases, although it, uh, although the third one is a documentary from Michael Moore. So I don't know. I, I it's hard to say what wide releases. To, I know what to expect one. But I don't know what to expect from the other releases this weekend. I'll have to pay close attention to my theaters. So, with that being said, let's take a look at the first trailer for the big release for next weekend. Jack Black and Kate Blanchett in Eli Roth's The House with a Clock in Its Walls. Never going to get over that. So, let's take a look at the, at the second trailer for The House with a Clock in Its Walls. Seems a lot like the first trailer. Amblin! Ooh! Spielberg is producing this one. How was your trip? This old hag is my neighbor. I'm relieved to see you didn't inherit your uncle's freakishly oversized head. My God, did that withered purple skeleton just speak? (laughs) Uh, You'll see, it's quite different here. Based on the spellbinding classic. Have a look around. You're perfectly safe. That's safe. As long as it's fed. Do you know what a warlock is, Lewis? A boy witch. I think they're a little more than boy witches. Are you saying that you're a warlock? Please teach me, please, please. Okay, have it your way. I can give you the right books, teach you the right spells, but that last 1%, that's up to you. I don't want the creepy little runt. Think I want him? <laughs> Lucky shot. You've told Lewis everything. Yeah, it's it's a li- it's the last trailer with a little bit extra. It seems to be. This house used to be owned by another warlock. He's very wicked, very powerful. He left a hidden clock in the walls. We don't know what it does except something horrible. 
three gongs. Last time it was four. What happens when it gets down to one? Nothing good, that's for certain. I love Kate Blanchett so much. Discover a place where magic lives. Have to destroy the clock. So creepy. You can't do this alone. I can help you. You want to see some real magic? I'll show you. Shall we? God, I hate pumpkins. <laughs> Did you see that? This is a- this actually looks to be a better uh, Goosebumps movie than the actual Goosebumps sequel than the actual Goosebumps sequel that that we're gonna get this fall. So funny how that works out. Yeah, uh, my mom. I'm gonna see this one again with my mom uh, because she loves Jack Black. I love Kate Blanchett, and I dig the premise. It seems to be very Harry Potter esque. So we'll see how it does uh, in the final in the final showing. But I'm I'm definitely intrigued. It piqued my interest. Uh, the other wide release this weekend is from Amazon Studios, and it is Life Itself. You ever gonna ask me out, Will? I'm just waiting for the right moment. I'll see you. Abby, I'm waiting for the right moment, because when I ask you out, there's not gonna be any turning back from God, Oscar Isaac is a dork in this. For the rest of my life. I'm not gonna love anybody else for the rest of my life. I'm waiting for the right moment, because when I ask you out, it's gonna be the most important moment of my life. And I just wanna make sure that I get it right. <laughs> yeah, he's from the creator of This Is Us. Life itself tricks us. It misleads us. It paints one man a hero when he may well be a villain. Hero or villain? Hola. Hola. Villain or hero? And the writer of Crazy Stupid Love. Maybe the heroes and villains of our stories are actually just day players in a much bigger movie. Witness the major motion picture event. I'm curious, this feels almost Cloud Atlas-like. We're trying to encompass so many aspects of the, that will remind you. Let's get married. We've been dating less than a year. I know. And I feel like I've shown incredible restraint waiting this long. You made me We're all part of a greater story. I love you. But I may not be equipped to be loved this much. Don't take this the wrong way. All I ever wanted was for Will to marry a woman with dead parents so we wouldn't have to share the grandchildren. Boom. It's okay. She knows what I mean. <laughs> Oscar Isaac, Olivia Wilde, Mandy Patinkin, Olivia Cook, Leia Costa, Annette with Annette Benning, and Antonio Banderas. So strange how a completely random moment that happened way before I was born would shape my entire life. Are you glad it happened? Life itself. Hey, are you pregnant? <laughs> Surprise! Written by Dan Fogelman. So, yeah, um, I'm not sure what all to make of that. I know um, when I said I was dubious of it, the actual Twitter account for the 
for the movie actually reached out to me and said, hey, you're going to like it when you see it. So for the Twitter account's sake, I hope it's right. Um, I'm definitely, I, I don't know, these kind of multi-generational uh, dramas may, don't always work out. I know Cloud Atlas was definitely very, uns- you know, very, very, uh, <laughs> had a lot of trouble trying to deal with that sort of storytelling. It's not as, not as, ep- not as epic of scope as that one, but it's definitely got a lot of the same issues, it seems like. And then lastly, supposedly the next wide release for the, for the last wide release for next weekend, Michael Moore's Fahrenheit 11.9. Can't take the insanity anymore. This is the movie. People telling me that America is the greatest country because we can whip your ass. That will end the madness. Some of these people, but I'd never kill them. How do you deal with this? You're never going to be able to unsee what you saw. From the Oscar-winning director of Bowling for Columbine. Try to impeach him. Just try it. You will have a spasm of violence in this country like you've never seen. On September 21st. I got some Flint water for you. Yeah. If nobody's gonna do it, then I gotta do it. And I don't give a who you are. I'll fight you in the damn street right now. Okay, um, um, how the did this happen? The American dream is dead. Stop resisting. The president's powers here are beyond question. Ladies and gentlemen, the last president of the United States. Oh, come on. Yeah. Yeah, I see the comparisons with um, Dinesh D'Souza. An American city near you. I mean, like, that's the thing. I agree with uh, Michael Moore and a lot of things. I also know he definitely plays up a lot of a lot of he's a showman more than anything else and i think that kind of is what's off-putting it's what kind of what i came to realize after watching uh bowling for columbine and especially um uh what was it what was after bowling i did i i think i saw roger and me which i think is still his best movie i never saw sicko i never saw um i did i did remember i do remember seeing i think fahrenheit 9-11 which yeah it it too had a lot of issues, but yeah, I get the comparison between Michael Moore and Dinesh D'Souza. It's it, it's it's show it's showmanship documentary filmmaking. It's the same problem you get with um, Super Size Me, where it becomes about the documentarian, not about the subject matter. So I don't know. Even if I do end up agreeing with this movie, I don't know if I'll actually like it. Just because this kind of documentary doesn't appeal to me, I prefer the usual, you know, a more sterile. I prefer my documentaries to be more like video essay, video essays, or video, uh, you know, treatises, paper, paper. Yeah, I feel like it should be set up like a thesis paper or something like that. It shouldn't be 
played out like a movie. A document. I mean, people will more likely watch a documentary if it plays out like a movie. But I feel like the best documentaries are the ones that don't try to play up something. They don't try to act bigger than they are. They just present the facts to you as they play out. And I think, and that's kind of why I never really considered Michael Moore one of the best documentarians. I think he's just, you know, he's just the guy who, you know, he he propagates movies for his side. Uh, I agree with him more than I do Dinesh D'Souza, but there's the comparison. It, you know, there's a reason for the comparison. But we'll yeah we'll see. Um, I doubt this will infuriate me as much as Dinesh D'Souza's did, because as much as uh, Michael Moore is is a showman and uh, he becomes the center of the movie, he. He he is he probably doesn't twist the facts and misrepresents the history as much as Dinesh D'Souza, but yeah. Anyway, uh, that about does it for this week. Un- um, almost ended the show there. <laughs> I'm tired. This is uh, this is almost one o'clock in the morning. By the time I'm uh, recording this, just because it took so long for me to um, for me to finish, because I had three movies to see in one day. Just because my weekend was so rocked. But yeah, anyway, um, uh, it's time for the plugs. That's the whole thing. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast, you're most likely listening to us on our homepage at GumbyCatNetworks.com. And if you want to keep up to date on all the new episodes as they come out, be sure to whitelist us on your ad blocker and favorite the page. And you can also check out all of our other fine programming. We've got a new episode of Living in the Stacks coming out this week on Fahrenheit uh, 451. Not Fahrenheit 9-11, that's not a book. Uh, or Fahrenheit 11-9, as it were. Uh, but, yeah, uh, so we're going to be talking, I'm going to lead the discussion on Fahrenheit 451, and if you want to check out check us out there, you can do so uh, by following Living in the Stacks as well. Be sure to check out all of Donna's stuff uh, through the Snarkast, uh, Beyond the Cabin in the Woods, Once More with Feeling, The Family Business, and all that. Um, I do want to I, I do want to get Tragic Missile up and running again, and I think by cutting back on Patreon content and focusing more on um, uh, on the stuff that I have backlogged, uh, Mike and I have been in discussion. Uh, Mike Palace and I over at Naji Day, we are going to do a soft reboot coming soon, and we're going to start. And we're going to start afresh, uh, and we're going to keep and we're going to keep plugging away at uh, Japanese pop culture and media. So. Keep your ears peeled, and we'll announce when the new episode of Maji Day comes out. But we are getting together uh, fairly soon to start recording new episodes. So, can't wait. Uh, I loved talking with Mike. I loved exp- uh, exploring more Japanese media. And it's going to be interesting to get back into the swing of things with that. Uh, if, you, if you're not listening to us on, our, on the website, you can, always, you, know, you can always find us on your various podcast providers. Uh, we're on Spotify. Uh, iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio. I believe. I think we might be on Stitcher. I'm gonna double check. But wherever you wherever you download podcasts, as long as you see my orange mug chomping on popcorn, staring at the movie, and you see the Gumby Cat logo down on the bottom, and we're well over 100 episodes, you're listening to the most up to date feed. And if not, be you. Know, if, and if your provider does not have it, let me know, and I will get to work on on allowing you for allowing that for you. Um. 
uh, be sure to also leave a five-star rating and review and uh, let people know that you like the show. You can also do so by sharing us on your various social media. The social media home of Popcorn Junkie is facebook.com slash popcornjunkie. There you'll get all the big announcements and news and updates and whatnot. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter at Corn Junkie Pod. You can find us on Instagram at Popcorn Junkie Podcast. You can find all my initial reactions to the stuff I see on Stardust by following Popcorn Junkie. And I haven't been using Mastodon as much. I'm going to... I'm probably going to take a bit off for that, give it, and hopefully give it some time to grow and try again in the bit. Uh, but, you know, if you want to try out a an alternative to Twitter, check out Mastodon.social. Um, I think those, you know, and then, of course, if there's anything you want to say to me, any kind of feedback you want to give, any kind of rebuttals you want to make to me, uh, send all of that to popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com and say in the message that you would like to hear, that you would, that you would allow me to you know, read your message on the air. Otherwise, I will keep it private. Uh, I don't want to give read anybody's messages without their express given consent. So, you know, if you want, if you just want to send me a message to read on the air, you could do so by sending that to popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail dot com. Or if you just want to keep in touch with me privately and uh, you know give give any kind of feedback or up or uh, you know corrections, and I can you know make you know make an amendment to a. Uh, the next week's episode in order to fit, you know, correct, you know, in order to correct something. Cause I would rather be correct. I would much rather be, uh, give out the right information than be, than, you know, be, give out the wrong information and pretend I'm still right. So yeah, that's one. That's all at popcorn junkie podcast at gmail.com. That about does it for this week. Until next time, I'm John Bailey and Olivia Munn did the right thing. If you disagree, you're wrong. <laughs> Theme song for Popcorn Junkie is Funky Popcorn by The M. Look up Funky Popcorn by the letter M on SoundCloud for more of their music. Artwork provided by Nathio, N-A-F-Y-O. Look up nathio.deviantart.com for more of his artwork. And yeah, like I will, I I do think. Um, and then, of course, uh, I'm going to cut all this out. I, I, those are some weird uh, vocal um, padding that I just did there.